and we're live. Welcome back, Potterheads. We're so glad you joined us for our take on the new Fantastic Beasts movie, The Crimes of Grindelwald. Um, thank you for coming on to the Pop Culture Theologians podcast. Um, Want to give a quick shout out to the Engaged Gays who hosts us. You can find us there um, with all of our other episodes, as well as some special content coming your way. My name's John. I'm one of your fearless two. You can find me on Twitter at jerickson85. And you can find the podcast on Twitter at Pop Theologians. And um, my compatriot, Marcy, how can we find you? Hey, everyone. You can find me on Twitter at I am the men who can. That's right. <laughs> um, so, Marcy, although I won't ask you about Florida this week, why don't we talk about what else the fuck happened this week? So, I actually wanted to keep these real short because I feel like we have so much to talk about with Harry Potter but so but it's been an interesting week yeah let's ignore Florida and Georgia Fuck Florida I know I'm so sorry, sorry. I know you live there uh, not for long <laughs> so on good news or I guess it's it's interesting news uh the Toy Story 4 trailer dropped this week um I'm a huge fan of of Pixar in general, but my first love was Toy Story. And I am a massive junkie for Toy Story 3. I thought it was maybe one of the most beautiful endings to a series ever. Uh, so I'm not gonna pretend that I was super psyched when I heard that there was going to be a Toy Story 4. I was a bit of a bitch about it and I was like, it was already perfectly ended, we don't need this. But uh, the new trailer dropped and they did the one thing they could do to like hook me in the nose and bring me right back in. They, uh, <laughs> their trailer it is the toys kind of holding hands in a bit of a disastrous circle to the music of Joni Mitchell to both sides now. And I was kind of dead. And so now I'm a little excited about it and I feel embarrassed that I bitch so much about it. I don't think we need it, but like I'll probably still see it anyways. Right. I mean, look, it's still going to be better than any one of the Cars movies, right? But oh, God. I think we had such a great trilogy there. Like, what I would say is one of the historically best trilogies in film history. So that's a lot to live up to. for Especially the way in which they ended it by, like, contextualizing um, coming out of childhood and into adulthood yeah, and how they beautiful. left it. It was perfect. It was beautiful. But... Pixar has rarely let me down. Uh, that's not to say it hasn't, but overall, it has been one of the most fruitful relationships in my life. So I'm going to withhold any judgment from here on out until we watch Toy Story 4. Yeah, uh, maybe we'll do an episode about it. Maybe. Actually, it'd be really fun to go through the Toy Story movies, actually. Um, that's true. The second thing of, uh, of the week is obviously the California wildfires continue the number of folks that have gone missing in the campfire continues to rise and neither one of the fires, the Northern or Southern are contained. So um, it's just awful, but in some lighthearted news regarding the fires, President Trump has solved the wildfire problem. Thank all, God. Thank God. Like all we need to do is rake the forest floors. That's it. He's such a 
moron. <laughs> I don't know if you I can't can. I can't even talk about that. Like he needs to I mean the look on the people's faces alone while they had to stand next to him was just abhorrent. So I, I will say as the only true Californian on this podcast, though John is a definitely an honorary Californian, um, there's a part of me that just kind of has to like laugh because it's like, dude, you hate our state, you hate our policy, you hate everything, but what are you doing with that other than making a fool out of yourself? Um, and why are you here? No one wants you here. People all over Twitter were taking pictures of themselves raking the forests uh, worldwide. Like the Netherlands joined in, Germany making fun Finland. of them. It was great. Yeah. So that's all it is, y'all. Uh, say no to forest fires, rake the floor. Uh, the third thing that happened, which I think is great news, is um, Jim Acosta got his credentials back for the White House. Um, this is a big deal, mostly because CNN had agreed to back Acosta in a lawsuit against the White House. And then the list of folks that were supporting that lawsuit included even Fox News. So my understanding of what happened is the White House backed off and said, here are your credentials. And then CNN was like, fine, we'll drop the lawsuit. So Jim Acosta- Basically, they ruled on um, the case alone, but not the merits of the case. So it was a Trump-appointed judge who said, can't do this. You know, right. you got to give us credentials back. They didn't really go into depth on the decision of the case. That's kind of something I think yet left to come. But they, I definitely think it's win one for the free press. Agreed. And I think, honestly, this was like, this is one of the many games of chicken that we have seen the White House play with, with the adults in the room. And it's another game of chicken they lost. So do I think that's, this is the end of it? No. Um, there was a bit of a threat uh, worked into the, the language of giving him back his credentials, which was kind of like, you ever do another thing again, whatever, whatever, whatever. And it's like, he didn't do anything. So, um, but we'll see what happens. All right, y'all. So that's kind of our, our wrap up for the week. Again, keeping it short. Uh, we're taking a different approach to this episode. So usually for the purge and even for fantastic beasts, we break down start to finish our shows or our movies. Um, we're not going to do that with the crimes of Grindelwald uh, for two for two reasons. One, one of the things we noticed with Fantastic Beasts is that, that from from a plot perspective, there's just too much to cover. Uh, but also, because the movies are too long. Right, John's going to bring that up probably like five times in this podcast. But I think we thought we were discussing that for a movie that we really can't even pull from anywhere other than us writing notes at the movie theater, the plot line, it's just too much. And what you're here to kind of work out with us is what worked, what didn't work, and what we think's coming next. So that's exactly how we're gonna break this down. So we invite you to join us as we break down Fantastic Beast and the Crimes of Grindelwald. Okay, so like we just said, we're going to talk about what worked. So for me, one of the things that worked um, that I really enjoy about a lot of films is world building. Now, 
is this world building in the way in which we get a complete and total picture? No, but I have always been fascinated in this world that JK Rowling has created. And so when you really look into the different magical ministries and the different magical universities and the people that exist in these worlds from the United States to Europe to Paris. I mean, I think it really does show off a part of book four, The Goblet of Fire, which was my favorite, um, which was all these different types of ways of life coming together um, to really show off that this is not just a Hogwarts thing. This is actually an entire world in which this woman is created. And so one of the things that worked for me was the building of that world. The fact that there are carny people is really interesting, but I was really fascinated by that. It's completely imperfect. Um, it's not, a, I mean, a totally developed part of this film. There's a lot of faults in it, but I was really digging a lot of that. Like at the end of the film, I'm like, oh my God, where are they? I just wanted to like, get a map or something but nevertheless i i digress so no for sure so they so i think they were at the nuremberg castle i'm totally messing that name up something but nazi related for sure something nazi related okay so world building i'm going to both agree and disagree with you i'm going to say we all know i don't know if anyone knows this but i i fucking love fantastic beasts and where to find them so one of the things that truly drew me into the first film in this prequel set was the world building. I think as an American Potterhead, there was something glorious about building out the magical world in like Brooklyn and in Manhattan. And, you know, I think as Americans, we tend to romanticize like London, right? Or, or Paris. And we forget that there's a lot of beautiful and kind of like historic places in the US. So to see JK Rowling enrich the wizarding world with our backyard for me was an amazing thing. Um, I'm going to say that I think that a lot of the potential for very interesting world building was in Crimes of Grindelwald. I'm not sure they, they built it up to its fullest potential. So hear me out. Uh, okay, we know I love Paris in the springtime, in the summertime. I don't care. I love Paris. Um, I was super excited when the film takes us to Paris to see that the area that they've chosen for wizarding Paris, for the carnival, right? The freak show, which we, we should talk about at some point, was Montmartre, which is honestly, of course, it's the wizarding part of Paris. It is the place where magic lives naturally in Paris. The thing is, I didn't get a sense of wizarding, wizarding Paris in 1920. So I don't think there's like a more beautiful time in history, like than the 1920, like the Belle Epoque in Paris. And we didn't really get any details that would have kind of fleshed that out, right? Like we saw no Can Can Girls, like even though we saw a sign painted onto a building that said Can Can, like we didn't see, you know, any of the great artists or thinkers interwoven into 1920s Paris and so you know in my head it's not that I needed like midnight in Paris but I did need the charm of it because I felt like we got the charm of New York in you know the early turn of the century in that first one so while I think the potential was there it just felt a bit like like they didn't take the time to visually flesh it out even if you notice the costumes the um what you could have done 
with Paris 1920 wizard costumes. And honestly, like Tina's just wearing a matrix jacket. Like, I just, I that's true although i love tina in the whole film she is oh my god one. we're so I, gonna disagree on this i again. know get ready listeners okay i, I interrupted right. you so no, no no so i so i agree with you and i think any potterhead will say um any fantasy lit or fantasy film fan will say world building is at the heart of why we call these stories home i'm just not sure because they crammed so much into this movie, if we got the type of world building we deserved. Well, I think that's the world building that paid off so much in the other films was because you start in one location and then you work outward from a centralized location. So you're at Hogwarts, you're at the Dursley's home. And then like, as the movies start getting more and more, you are into, you know, into Diagon Alley to places where Voldemort were. I think that's why that was so successful with world building. But because this film tried to shove so much into there, they're like, hey, look, another flashy place that you probably want to know more about. But here's just a little cute aspect of it. Right. And like no specialized magic. So in this last, in the last episode we did on Fantastic Beasts, we talked, we talked about the kind of mundane magic that we all fall in love with, right? Like Queenie making the strudel or some of the simpler magic that has always been what we're like, man, what I would do to have a, like a spell that would make my, I don't know, uh, my Roomba go faster, right? We didn't get any sense of magic here other than defense spells. So uh, again, you know, it's just, there's so much there and I'm, I just, I wanted more. So moving on. So something else that worked. And trust me, you can ask John, it was really hard for me to find things that worked. Um, Marcy, just so our listeners know, how many times have you seen the film? So I've already seen the movie twice, technically three if you count the time I streamed it, Um, twice in the movie theater, once (laughs) with my husband who had to listen to me, like honestly have an existential crisis for 24 hours. And then another time with my brother who then had to listen to me until he was basically like, go home, Mars. Like, it's okay. So, and I, I've ordered the screenplay. It's sitting on my bed right now as I record and have already started reading it. So, so yeah, it was hard to find things that worked, but I dug deep y'all. I dug deep for you. So one thing that worked for me is Jude Law as Dumbledore. Uh, I don't think our past Dumbledores were ever the same Dumbledore that I loved on the page. So Dumbledore is a complicated character. He is not our perfect hero. He's not even our perfect like father figure. He's a man who's extremely powerful and smart, but he has like, he has issues, right? Like he clearly has issues. But Jude Law is exactly what I saw in my head. Like coquettish, brilliant, you know, sexy like I just I he's what I wanted like he's what I wanted out of a Dumbledore I wanted a Dumbledore with charisma and who yeah could convince people to do pretty much anything so I'm very happy with Jude Law do I think we saw him enough no but I'll know that later <laughs> no I agree I really like Jude Law as Dumbledore I um thought he worked really well the one thing about Dumbledore for me is that he says sentences that you know there's more to it, but he doesn't add on. He will say something, and there's so much to unravel in either the written page or 
you know, on the screen that you just sit there and you go, well, he said this then, and it meant this that comes out later in a film. And I really do think that Jude Law played him very well. I do hope to see the sexuality aspect, which everyone raked J.K. Rowling through the fires for like years ago when it first came out about him being gay in the actual book, saying like it was just a thing that he's always been gay. I do want to see the nuances with that. And I think an actor like Jude Law and the caliber that he puts into all of his work will be able to do um, and portray that type of feeling and emotion that I think we've come to expect from Dumbledore in a really positive and successful way. Yeah. And I think to clarify for anyone listening who, you know, didn't accidentally dedicate their entire academic life to Harry Potter. um, No, there's nowhere explicit in the books where it says that Dumbledore is gay. That came from a conversation that JK Rowling had, uh, which for those of us in the Potter verse, like this Potter universe, it's considered canon now. She said, obviously he is. It just it wasn't on the page, which had its own issues when that all came out, but it is considered canon and it's considered part of like the, the larger Potter wiki, which we'll get into in a bit for some other stuff. But for anyone who's like, I don't remember him being gay in the seven films, like, well, he was, and she didn't make that explicit, which is problematic, but we know that now. So we know that now. Um, So loved it. I'm glad we found common ground already, Marcy. Well, I mean, Jude Law is common ground for anyone. (laughs) I think it's actually a law. Jude Law is like Tom Hardy. I don't even trust straight men who are like, I don't think he's attractive. I'm like, yeah, no. Dude, my dog's attractive. My beta fish is like, yes, (laughs) ma'am. Yeah, I completely and 100% agree. (laughs) And the way in which Tom Hardy talks about masculinity just turns you on even more. But that's another podcast. Um, Can I throw a tiny bit of shade? Yes. A queer Dumbledore would have dressed better in the 1920s. <laughs> First of all, I'm going to disagree with you on that. Those, like, pants no, that Jude Law was wearing. Great, but there was no, like, flair. He, like, dresses super flairish as he ages. And I don't, I mean, maybe you pick up more flair as you age. Maybe he doesn't have tenure yet. No, there, he's got no money. He's just got a great <laughs> Exactly. Um, So another thing that worked um, for me in the film was Letta Lestrange. I thought Zoe Kravitz did an incredible job. She had me transfixed right away. There's an innocence about her that I just love. And like she plays her characters with such a nuance that um, bringing this aspect to uh, Lita Lestrange was just amazing. And the one thing that drew me into this character so much was the consequences of family. And I think what I mean more um, when I say that is that our actions have ripple effects, meaning what Lita does um, regarding her brother, which we'll talk about that more later about what didn't work, has a larger impact to the story that we're actually seeing unfolding. And it's the consequences of family you don't know about. It's the consequences of family that you hide. I think it's all of these aspects of the relationship to what family brings to you as a person and then like as a individual in your community that makes it so complex. And I think that she did a really great job with that. Yeah, no, I think she is amazing. I, I appreciated her performance. 
I agree that there is this like softness to her harder core and that harder core of Lita Lestrange, Letta Lestrange, um, that I think she did very, very well. I don't think, and we'll get into this in what didn't work. I don't think we saw enough of her. Um, but I will say that something that struck me that we talk about often is that JK Rowling is very good at talking about how the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves end up being some of the trauma that we struggle to let go of. So, yeah. So I think like a lot of us grow up with stories in our families, right. About like who we are, what we've done. Um, Like I'll give a really like stupid example. Right. So when I was a kid, I was like super like picky about food and it became a running joke in my family that like, no one wanted to go on vacation with me or, or, eat, or to have dinner with me because I just, I would never eat my food, right? And that kind of became this thing that was repeated over and over and over again to the point where I internalized that it was unpleasant to go out with me. And that like, and so that became something so simple became traumatic because it was just something that followed me around for years and years with my family and became jokes. And then I was like, is this a joke? And I think when we talk about Lita Lestrange and and the consequences of our family narratives, we'll get into this like story within a story about her. Um, But I did like the idea that like that type of whatever that blame game is that you're playing can rot like it can rot you from the inside, whether it's a powerful story or not, we are whatever we tell ourselves we are. And Lita Lestrange in her head was a murderer. I don't think she was. And I don't think anyone in the, in the vault, the Lestrange vault, when she's like, it's my fault. I killed him. Like everyone's like, nah, girl, you didn't, but she thought she did. And that mattered. And I thought that was powerful. And she internalized that with her relationship with Newt. Like when she looks at him and says, you've never met a monster you couldn't love. That was devastating. Devastating, because I think you really see the fact that maybe her and Newt would have worked out, but she has this self-hatred towards herself that she thinks she's a monster and that she's not worthy of a lot of love. And I think with Newt and her's relationship, who knows where that would have went as a result. If like she would have been able to, I don't know, isn't this the time of Sigmund Freud? Can't she go talk to him for a little while? Is he in Paris? <laughs> is he in Paris? And is he in movie three? Dude, pour one out for the amount of relationships we have all ruined because of low self-esteem. Like, exactly. Come on, Lestrange. <laughs> um, so another thing that I loved, and it's probably my favorite thing about the whole film, is that um, Queenie's character for me and the relationship she starts to build with Grindelwald and the ultimate relationship to the message he's putting out. So little quick synopsis, Queenie and Jacob are in America. Um, Witches cannot marry nomages because it's illegal there. It's a very keen to white people marrying black people during the civil rights era, pre-civil rights era. And so here you have the same types of laws impacting witches and non-magical people as well. So flash forward to her in London and then Paris, she gets drawn into the message that Grindelwald has that you do not have to exist in a world based off of these laws by 
people who are quote unquote beneath you. And that is Grindelwald's message, but he puts it in this alluring way of love and acceptance. And that's really what she wants. She really does want a place where she doesn't have to be ashamed of her love for Jacob and her relationship to that message is something that I think we see so alluring. I think it's really alluring to the ways in which we've talked about it in, you know, season one, when we talk about the purge and Penelope, I think it's the ways in which cults and these organizations that bring you in that are actually really devastating and traumatic or, you know, just authoritarianism, like in general, um, it has to have an appealing nature. That's why Trumpism is so powerful because of what it quote unquote offers people and what they get that they're not getting from the current system that they feel victimized by for now. So I really liked the character of Queenie in the film, but specifically how the actress was playing her. I thought it was beautiful. She's wonderful. Um, We disagree here. Uh, I'll save most of my disagreement for when we start listing off things that didn't work. I'll tell you that what I do think works is obviously this is a critique of rising authoritarianism and fascism worldwide. JK Rowling is not writing in a bubble right now. Uh, if anyone follows her on Twitter, Twitter, which can be a bit of a mixed bag, she's, she's one of those people that it's like better not to follow on Twitter, but she is extremely concerned about what is going on right now. Um, as, as should be expected, right? The original seven were about the rise of, of Nazi Germany. Um, on record, again, not in canon, but she has said that multiple times. And I will say that Queenie's transformation I have issues with, but I don't have issues with addressing how righteous anger, so her, her righteous anger that her and Jacob could not be together. And we know that there's nothing wrong with it. We know that that no mages and, and wizards are able to marry any, mostly anywhere else, like that type of righteous anger can become corrupted. Um, I'm thinking of, you know, season one in The Purge, we talked about this a bit. So like, if you look at some of the rural white voters who are so angry, they have a lot of really good reasons to be angry. The problem is that anger has become corrupted by the forces that have taken advantage of that anger. So like then you get like white supremacy groups who feed off of that anger and then kind of contort it into something that it shouldn't be. So that critique, while simultaneously the softness towards the righteous anger, it, that does work for me. Uh, Queenie's development, not so much, but we'll talk about it in a bit. Um, I will say something that worked for me, again, pulling something out of my hat here, uh, similar to the first- Out of your sorting hat. But um, <laughs> one of the things that continues to work for me is the wonder and awe of Newt's suitcase. Like every time we go down into his beast, like place, house, magical zoo in his suitcase, um, I'm reminded of why I love this world. Uh, this is the type of world building that works for me. Like I was just about to go there. I'm gonna let you. I'm, I'm gonna let you finish. Okay. I'm reclaiming my time. <laughs> the the Kelpie and and the the Irish lore to the Kelpie makes sense in in the movie. And then the the animals and the ways that they bridge animals that we know existing um, to kind of fantastical beasts. That stuff works for me and. It's funny because no, I'm not here for a story about magical beasts, but I am here to see it. So um, are there problems with the the beast magic? Yeah, like the two, the three animals 
beasts that are highlighted in Crimes of Grindelwald all have Asian uh, backgrounds, but there's no kind of uh, fleshing out of the Asian uh, identity there, so they become a bit tokenized. But but I am living for going down there and checking out his safe spot. Like, I don't even know why Newt comes out of his suitcase. I would just stay down there. And especially in his house. I mean, I think that's the type of world building that I really drew me into these very beautiful... I mean, the images and the colors are just exquisite. And I think with Newt's um, basement in his house um, to the suitcase, you really see a world that defined him, that really shaped and molded him. And that's why these pe- these beasts that scare everyone, like that tiger um, flower thing, I remember what it's called, but like, whatever that is, it terrifies everyone. But then you see the relationship that that beast has with building a personal connection between him and actual people. Like, for example, Tina, when he looks at her and she tames a beast and gets it in the suitcase as well. There's a connection that these beasts have to the world and to Newt specifically. And it's, it's a beautiful part of the film. Agreed, agreed. And I would say, and John, tell me if you agree, for the average movie watcher, not the Potterhead who knows like, every single insignificant detail to the average watcher. I think this was a perfectly enjoyable movie. Convoluted, yeah. Do I think that they were probably confused about a lot of the details if they were paying attention? Yes. But do I think to the average person, it was a rather enjoyable analogy for the rise of fascism? Sure. I I think you're totally right. I think when the movies first started coming out, so Marcy saw it on opening night, right? I I did. You did. I saw it a few days later um, because I'm old and tired all the time. And I'm not a Potterhead like Marcy. I am a Potterhead. I am not like Dr. Potterhead like Marcy is. You don't, and you don't have Harry Potter tattoos yet. <laughs> I don't. But in rewatching the seventh film of the actual original series, I almost wanted to get the same tattoo of Snape's like, you know, final moments. Like it's just one of the most beautiful scenes ever. And it kills me every time. However, that's not what we're discussing. But I do think when I looked on Twitter and social media, there were a lot of people that loved it. And they're sitting there going, what are you all saying? Like, why do you all hate this? And like, that's because I think so many people like yourself, Marcy, myself, even we've invested a lot into the academic exploration. (laughs) into this world um or even just the general like nuances for what it serves you know yeah just i mean just what it serves in our overall psyche i mean i remember where i was when i saw the first film i remember sitting on the floor of the marcus theaters in oshkosh wisconsin for three hours playing card games with my best friends to see the first film because we were such fans not in oshkosh but i think that's why we care so much. So I, I totally agree. And I think, look, I spent a lot of Thursday night, like looking on Twitter to make, just to find someone who felt like I did. And everyone who was like, Oh my God, best movie ever. I was like, you simple, you're simple. Next. Like I was so a simple girl. I was so pissed that everyone like loved it. And I was like, what are you talking about? Are, are we not Harry Potter fans? Did we not just watch the same movie? So yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think the average watcher was like, all right, whatever. Like, um, one final thing before I forget, before we move on to my favorite part of tonight, what did not work is Jacob Kowalski continues to be the cutest. Like he's my homeboy. I love him so much. And I think his portrayal of a horrified bystander when someone you love goes straight fascist was great. Um, I think he 
he just, everything from the ways in which he was trying to be open to the differences between, between him and Queenie. So the scene where like Queenie is arguing with him and he's about to call her crazy and he stops and Queenie's like, I heard you, right? That was such a beautifully portrayed scene because again, deconstructing masculinity, Jacob doesn't get furious and he could because like he didn't say it. But instead, he just tries to work through it. And, like, he's extremely patient with her. And um, I just, I loved, I continue to. And his horror at the end of the film by watching Queenie broke me. It broke me. It was painful. So a lot of love to Jacob. I need to say one more thing that worked for me. Theseus Scamander. (laughs) Get out of here. Yeah, no. Thank you. Next. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So moving on to what everyone actually came to listen to. What did not work in this movie? Whoo, buddy. Marcy, before we begin, let's just give our listeners a a maybe a quick rundown of your initial reaction to the film because I follow you on Twitter and I get notifications for when you tweet and mm-hmm. my phone started blowing up. So like, if you could just, before we get into the nitty gritty, like what, my trauma. Wh- I want you to walk us through your trauma. Like that's blue bless your trauma. Right. So I just, I felt like I was in drag for the last like 30 minutes. Cause it was not me. Um, I fucking hated this movie. Uh, which is really hard to say because my entire life, like, look, my life is dedicated to Potter. Ever since I left religion, this is as close to religion as I've got. I'm a total Potterhead. Um, first watch, I, I'm sitting there with my husband. I'm like three quarters of the way in. Um, and I just look at him and I was like, this is like a burning pile of shit. And he just kind of looks at me a little bit incredulous because I don't think I've ever criticized anything from Harry Potter. Not even the first two movies, which are so lame. Like, and like, I just got real quiet. And then um, when we when we left, look, my husband is a saint because I lost my shit for like a solid 12 hours where I was like, what the, what was this? What was this? How, what? Oh, like, honestly, I was like, I was apoplectic like I couldn't like process what I had just seen and then because I don't know how to watch movies one time uh you know within 24 hours I was like John Paul my brother I was like we gotta go like we gotta go see it again and then we gotta talk about it and then I was even more pissed the second time um I was trolling Twitter to find anyone who agreed with me um and who agreed with me from a place of love so that's where I want to make the distinction I am not here to shit on Harry Potter anyone who knows me It is my life. (laughs) It is literally tattooed on her body. Literally tattooed on my body. My husband and I met and fell in love because I I was talking to this dude and he was like, nope, never read Harry Potter. And I was like, I'll bring you the first book tomorrow. Drove it to his work. And then, you know, we've been together now for like 11 years. And he also has Harry Potter tattooed on him. Uh, I'm struggling. I'm struggling as a devoted fan. So everything that I'm about to break down uh, comes from a place of love. Um, but also it's been a very hard week for me to process everything I know about Potter with what I'm, what I just saw. So, so my reaction, I just got to tell you because Marcy, you did a great job of not spoiling it for me. So I want to, I want to say thank you. But, um, at the end of the film, 
Um, and we'll get there. Um, <laughs> I just said out loud in a theater. Oh, so I guess we're just making shit up now, are we? Right. <laughs> and uh, I didn't really know how to react. I too might go see it again tonight because I saw it in an old theater here in Los Angeles in Highland Park. Yeah, you and want to see, like arc light. I need to go to like a really good theater to see it because it's just beautiful. I think the colors are beautiful and all that. So I definitely need to see it again. But Marcy, I'm with you. Yeah, I felt like Buddy the Elf. I was like, you sit on a throne of lies. I was like, what is happening? Um, I tried to be respectful to people, but I was just, I, I think people could hear, I think they could feel my fury. So let's start with the first like 12 fucking seconds of the movie. American Ministry of Magic. First off, you spent the entire last movie telling me about Makuza, the magical Congress of the United States. Why on earth do you introduce it now as the American Ministry of Magic? No, no, that's not how you do world building. Like, I love Makuza. I love it so much, it's my passport cover. I loved, like we talked about with world building, that it was uniquely American. It was democratic. It was, it was Makuza. Like, did you catch that? I did. I never knew what to call it. I always forget that it was called Makuza. And so like, for me, it was one of those like continue it, like, like things that they, it's a continuity issue. And so I'm like, okay, I think it was a lot easier in the focus groups. Here's what I think happened. They definitely had a focus group and they're like, Hey, do you all remember what the American ministry is called? And the one person in the thing who's a hardcore potterhead, like, isn't it called Makuza? And then the other people are like, isn't it called American ministry? And then the person that asked the question itself called it the American ministry. So therefore the problem is no one knows what to call it. So we're going to simplify it because it's just going to be the American ministry. I can live with it, but <laughs> it is annoying. Listen to me at the focus group because it's Makuza. <laughs> it's Makuza. But that's a very small continuity issue. The thing, the reason it struck, it stuck out to me is it's within the first five seconds of the film. And, and they write it out. They're like, oh. Right, um. right. And then, you know, when we get to the French ministry, it's like French ministry of magic. And I was like, you couldn't just put it in French, like Ministère Francais de Magique. Like, it'd be fine. Americans will figure it out. Like, again, sloppy but let's let's talk real sloppy i'm gonna i'm gonna work my way through the sloppiness here so we're talking about continuity issues um before i jump into the mcgonagall issue uh they they tell us the dumbledore uh and give us these gorgeous flashbacks that i understand why they are progressing the story of Lita lestrange as best they can that dumbledore taught defense against the dark arts except he didn't <laughs> canon like in the original seven books, it is clearly stated, I think multiple times, but definitely by uh, Rita Skeeter, Dumbledore only ever taught transfiguration. That's it. So I think there's two reasons they did this. Um, and I, okay, let me preface all of this critique with, I trust JK Rowling. She has never steered me wrong. She is one of the longest relationships of my life. I am very much invested in hoping in the fact that she is going to bring all of this together. And I'm just going to look like a huge asshole for being like, what are you doing? I know better than you about your story. But well, she is known for that. She is known for red herrings big time. Right. And I will say like, and you were following me on Twitter, what I did after watching the first time was immediately went to the books 
and started looking for things that I, I know the chapters pretty much by heart. So I was like, I need to look some stuff up to see if I see some hints of things that we picked up here. One of the things I looked up is what Dumbledore taught. Transfiguration, that's it. We've got him teaching defense against the dark arts. I think that that may have been needed from a story perspective to give us the Bogart scene with Lita Lestrange. Um, it's strange to do that. Uh, I think there's other ways to have done that. I think she could have ran into a Bogart and he helps her. Um, but we know that he only taught transfiguration, uh, which leads us to another inconsistency that the internet has been aflame with, which is Professor McGonagall shows up. <laughs> and according it's to- bad that, writing. It's bad writing. So I think there- they, people just, I think they were like, people really get a kick out of seeing McGonagall, except McGonagall wasn't born until 1935, according to the Harry Potter wiki, which and is- she's Irish? Question one. mark? Yeah, I think she's always been Irish, but, but she was not born at this time. And some people are like, well, maybe it's McGonagall's mom. And it's like, no, he refers to her as Minerva. So I think, again, just sloppiness there for the sake of like dropping some like, you know- dropping some confetti for readers miss misremembering that we are voracious fact finders for harry potter i'm not going to be thrilled you threw mcgonagall out before she was even born i'm not thrilled that you've got like a super sexy dumbledore teaching you know defense against the dark arts because he didn't teach defense against the dark arts and again she could bring this all around and we will figure it out i know mcgonagall had a time turner and Maybe Dumbledore lied here about this, uh, and he really did teach Defense Against the Dark Arts, but that just seems like sloppy writing to me. And that is something that I did think about, is like, well, maybe there is a time-turner involved here. I mean, because there's magic, right? <laughs> That's the one thing with magic, when you incorporate it into your stories, that you get a lot of leeway. And granted, J.K. Rowling's magic's practical. There's consequences and there are rewards to certain magic so you can't just willy-nilly travel through time and do whatever you want but maybe there's some thing there there i don't know yet though um getting to maybe the biggest continuity issue other than the final story twist is every single piece of marketing for this movie shows the deathly hallows sign um which is you know the elder one the resurrection stone and the invisibility cloak. And that goes back to the Beetle the Bard stories. What we know from book seven of the original series is Grindelwald and Dumbledore uh, were on the Hallows quest and they got pretty far in it, right? Um, we know that they fought over the Elder One. Uh, eventually Dumbledore gets it from Grindelwald. We don't know where they find the, the Elder Wand. Um, but the, the Hallows quest is at the center of Dumbledore and Grindelwald's early friendship and then quest for power. Uh, let me ask you something, John. Did you get even a remote sense of the Deathly Hallows in this film? No. So for anyone watching this movie, like there's no significance to Grindelwald's wand, right? Or like what it is that like, make certain things so here's here's a really good example so the speeches that uh grindelwald gives have foundations in what we know is the greater good conversations that dumbledore and grindelwald had right and that they actually had their falling apart over um but we know that like that is what bonded them together was the fact that they did th like 
people watching have no concept that Dumbledore totally supported Grindelwald's plan when they were kids. Yeah, wizards need to take over because we're a superior race and we'll take care of the muggles that we can take care of. Like that was Dumbledore's espoused like worldview, not just Grindelwald's. And we don't have the deconstruction of when Dumbledore went from believing in that to not believing in that versus Grindelwald completely moving forward. Um, but the, just the lack, the absence of Deathly Hallows in this film is is just such a glaring omission. Uh, do I think people who've never seen or anything really specifically missed it? No, but you're you're missing foundations to a lot of the speeches that are happening. And also, so when when Newt gives Dumbledore back that little blood veil. And, and Newt says, you think you can destroy it. There's this weird way that Dumbledore's like, maybe? <laughs> and like, that was where one of the first parts where I was like, I don't think he wants to destroy it. Maybe they're going to give us more on why this relationship is so complicated. Um, but to anyone watching, I'm not sure they picked up on the fact that Dumbledore can be duplicitous, right? Well, I think this whole... I think what we're really seeing here is that if the first series of movies is as much about Harry and Dumbledore, when Dumbledore is like chosen his path and is righteous and all these things, this film is as much about Dumbledore still struggling with a lot of stuff and dealing with a character similar to Harry that he took to Newt. And I think with Dumbledore's building as a character you're trying to see as an audience that maybe you can't trust everyone maybe these people that we thought were perfect are actually imperfect and i think with dumbledore and grindelwald you see that allure that attraction and ultimately what caused them to go down two different paths with you know the wand fight of the century that all we heard about you know was when Grindelwald faced off against Dumbledore that we're building up to right in like movie 34 whenever it's going to happen but I think you see this twinkle in Dumbledore's eyes because he doesn't know I think who he is yet I don't think he's a set of stone as he is in like book six of you know Harry Potter and so I think that's where we're going at with that and I'm here for that I am here for the imperfect perfect hero right like I'm here to understand and build upon that what I'm not here for is sloppy writing and that's where I'm really critical on JK Rowling for the Dumbledore stuff and I hope we and I hope we get there because Dumbledore is a very scrutinized character like Harry Potter and his family and everything so I think when we get to that ultimate scene between him and Grindelwald because everyone asks him to fight Grindelwald and he says no what is it finally that makes him say yes right and I mean my guess is they destroy this blood veil uh but no or Grindelwald kills someone that he really cares about I mean who knows my understanding is they cannot fight each other similar to the unbreakable vow I think that they that unless this this magical artifact, which almost functions like a horcrux, like unless it's destroyed, they cannot fight each other. They vow. That makes sense then. Yeah. So, all right. So moving into storylines that, so that was some of our continuity issues. There were also storylines that I felt were incomplete. So the first one, I'm going to just kind of briefly go through because there was nothing to go off of. So... Nagini was a character people were confused was included in the series, but then were a bit excited about. So Nagini is the snake uh, that Voldemort is extremely close to. She was a horcrux. Um, 
she shows up as one of the freaks in the circus that Credence ends up at. And then that's all we've got. That, like, this is where I'm going to get really cynical. So you brought in an Asian woman character as an ornament. Like, there is nothing I can say about this character that does justice to the actress or anything. She was just a visual. Um, we don't, so the freak show is problematic, um, but it all, like, because I feel like it, 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 it participated in some Orientalism, but the thing is, like, if you're going to bring in a character that we all know, that we know gets killed, like, in a, in a really brutal way, and not give us anything on her other than she's, like, cowering in a corner with Credence. Like, how did she meet Credence? Why does she like Credence? How uh, are they both in the circus? Why, did, why are they in the circus? Like, What happened to Credence? Isn't he supposed to be dead? Right. Like, so Nagini's just a nothing in this movie, and that is really offensive. Um, not just because she is the first kind of, she's not the first because we had Cho Chang, which there you go. That's how problematic that is. But um, it's just, I, I was really let down. Like, is the scene of her transforming into the snake beautiful? Yes. Is that it? <laughs> like, well, I just, it's like, I want to know more about this blood curse. I want to know more about the fact that, you know, she, um, you know, apparently at a certain point, won't be able to transform back. I think that they introduced her, so that way she plays a larger role. And I'm I'm hoping that she will play a larger role later on, and we'll see how she gets to where she is when and we see her in the films. Because she was in that, like, emerging Dumbledore's army that shows up at the end, right, at Hogwarts. But the problem is, like, again, bad writing. Shoving so much into this movie without any context... Like, I'll be honest, this movie felt like movie four out of five in this series. And that somehow I missed movies two and three with all these backstories. That's how I feel. So like, clearly I missed the Nagini Credence story um, and where Nagini fits into this. Um, I, I miss like, like you said, Credence? Like, what does Credence want? And, and why, and why is he at the circus? And like, how did he survive the end of the last movie? And why is he cowering if he knows he's so powerful? And like, why is he with Nagini? Are they dating? Do they know a lot about it? Like, there's just literally nothing to go off of. And like the cowering tween of Credence being like, who's my mom? Doesn't work for me. Like, it doesn't work for me. So, yeah. Uh, speaking of things that were incomplete, you and I both said we really loved the Lita Lestrange character, right? Um, yes. Why did why is she a Lestrange? So she's. Uh, I honestly have no idea. I thought it was like the Lestrange's like second cousin's cousin. Well, and obviously she comes before like Bellatrix and um, uh, ooh, Narcissa, and like even Nymphadora is the niece of of the Lestranges. But to me, unless you connect her to the Lestranges, this makes no sense because we have invested in the Lestrange family. We know them from canon. We know them to be dark wizards. So you didn't even give us the illusion of like, yeah, by the way, her dad, totally dark wizard. Nothing. There was nothing to tie her to the Lestrange. Or that her dad's a rapist. Right. right. I mean, granted, that lets me know he's a dark wizard. But like, there was a problem with like, me understanding why she's a Lestrange. And then again, it feels a bit like sloppy writing of like, oh, people will be excited to see a Lestrange. And I'm like, I don't need an extra Lestrange. But even more tragic to me 
is the completely unwritten love triangle of Lita, Newt, and oh my God, what's his name? Theseus. Theseus. So that worked for me. Yo, I'm sorry. You, you can't just not tell us anything about it. Like, clearly Newt and Lita were together at Hogwarts. The trailers tell us more about uh, Lita, Theseus, and Newt and the first film than this film actually does. Yeah, no, I was like, wait, wh- where did they fall apart? When did they break up? Wait, they broke up and then she got with his brother, but she's still in love with him, but I think she's still in love with the brother too. That's a complicated love triangle that I would have preferred we delved into than say the Senghalese brother storyline with Lita. And especially when at the end, and spoiler alert, she yeah. dies and he she looks at Theseus and Newt and she goes, I love you. You do not know which one she is referring to. Well, and that sucks. Like, I'm okay with not knowing which one. I'm okay with, like, look, I believe you can love two people at the same time. I think love is a complicated thing. But give me the story. Give me the story, because if not, this is, it just, I felt ripped off there. Yeah, me too. Um, speaking of love stories that were incomplete. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. What the hell, Dumbledore and Grindelwald? First of all, not that I'm sitting here looking for like a gay romantic relationship with Johnny Depp because Johnny Depp is trash. But I am like, I am like, where is it? Like they led up to it. They've talked about it. And it's clearly a part of this universe, or hopefully will. And you get this lusting look of Dumbledore in the mirror of Erised. Am I saying it right? Yeah, mirror of Erised. Yeah, and you get this lusting look and you're like, okay, I'm getting something because you see what you most desire and you can never, and and he can't have it. And you really try to understand, like, what is it? And to the average viewer, they don't know. They're like, what's going on? What, the line where Dumbledore's like, we were closer than brothers. Like, that's it. (laughs) That's it. We got more Alita Lestrange and we didn't get anything there. Exactly. So I'm just like, for that storyline, like, I'm already hashtag over it. Yeah, no. Um, I thought that, that there was a bit of a cop out there. Look, I don't need, like, some nude sex scene between Dumbledore and Grindelwald. Well, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, let's not go too crazy now, Marcy. Don't, you don't speak for me. Well, <laughs> I, just, I just, like, I don't like, um, I, I don't like the, the wink, wink, nod, nod. So yeah. sexuality, like to me, is like, all right, we don't. It makes it into a joke or an afterthought. Yeah, like the worst thing is someone living in a closet. So don't do it to Dumby. Um, no one gives a shit about Grindelwald. So we already. Talked I would about- give a more. I would give more sh- shits about this storyline if Grindelwald was not Johnny Depp. I have to be completely. Oh my god, wrong. agreed. Like a com- like, it is very hard for me to separate my absolute disdain for Johnny Depp with because i'll tell you what he was probably the best performance in this film and that is complicated for me like because it just should have stayed colin firth sorry um for multiple reasons but yeah i feel like i would be more invested in the complications of this relationship if i wasn't like my dumbledore doesn't date johnny depp um the best character in the film was nicolai flamel fyi oh my god i didn't even write that in our outline because i didn't want to dignify it but I'm sorry. Like when what? Scrooge appearance? He looked like he 
was in the Muppets Christmas Carol. Sorry, guys. I, I don't have time to go through Nicholas Flamel, but that was some shit. Like, I was like, what is happening? But you saw the Sorcerer's Stone. There's a lot of Easter eggs in this film. No, there there are. I just, I, I don't understand why he looked like one of the ghosts from A Christmas Story. Like, I just, I don't get it. Um... <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. Uh, another thing that I thought was an incomplete storyline, which I, is funny upon first appearance, but then I was like, wait, what? Did you notice that like Grindelwald smokes the hookah to see the future? Yeah, I wanted to be like, what are you smoking? Like, what? There was a lot of stuff that was just pulled out of thin air with no foundation for it. Um, so I, I was just like, okay, skull hookah. Like, okay. Um, which becomes a problem, right? Because the implication in the the really huge speech at the end of the film is that like Grindelwald is showing them World War II. He's showing them the Holocaust and concentration camps. And he's like, you know, this is what's coming. We can stop it. And I was like, oh, that is so... Wizards, if they could have stopped World War II and didn't, are problematic. Uh, so this whole scene doesn't work for me because it implies that wizards cared more about hiding than they did about the atrocities committed during World War II. And we do know from the first movie that wizards fought in World War I um, because Newt says he was in some dragon-like initiative of some sort. But like, I did not feel comfortable with the bringing in of an actual like concentration camp line into that imagery. Yeah. So... Um, and from there we move on to what I'm going to call unnecessary storylines, like storylines that we really didn't need, like the Sengali's brother with Lita Lestrange. Uh, that entire storyline doesn't work. Uh, I, I, think, I don't even remember what it was about. I honestly think it was to give Tina something to do, uh, for a while and, and then, Okay, we already have the Chosen One prophecy in, in the first books. Doing it again in such a sloppy way just felt reductive. Um, and then when, uh, when he's like, I'm Lita's brother and Credence is my other brother and I need to kill him, not a single person gave a shit. I, honestly, we gave a shit that Lita had blamed herself for years about killing, killing her brother, but like, I was like, goodbye sir like i just didn't have time for it and i yeah, was it was such it. a waste of time it's a waste of time again the films are too long because they keep and this is one of jk rowling's biggest faults she writes like storylines about characters that she does not need to write storylines about characters for like and she just goes there with people it's like my biggest problem with lord of the rings like i mean f they just sit there and they describe a blade of grass for 30 pages and you're sitting there going, what's going on with the actual story? It's just very annoying. I, I will disagree with you that I've loved all of her extra stories and the fact that she has notebooks and notebooks and notebooks. I love her written stories, but I think right. that's the problem with the films. And I think this is where, and we should, I would love to, I would love, I want to hear your opinion about this because this is why we started a podcast, Marcy. But um, like, you know, when she wrote the book, she had years and years to write these, unlike George R. R. Martin, who just, you know, just likes to screw with us all. But she had time to build it out. That's why all these, like, plot threads that 
really we're, we're pointing out here, they didn't happen as much in the books because she had time to do it. The capitalization and monetization of these films forces her to do it for, she writes the other film and then two years later, she has to pop out another complete draft. And I think that that shows her, you know, faults as a writer. I mean, that's where you see a lot with her other work outside of the Potterverse. There are a lot of plot holes in her writing. How dare you criticize my queen and savior's writing? I will say though, that like any good writer, she should not be doing her own editing. So I think that it is so easy, you know, you write for fun, I write for fun. Like um, I consider myself like a terrible frustrated writer, but I consider myself a writer. One of the things that is so difficult is when you write, you become attached to, to the fully fleshed out characters in front of you, which is why you never are the one to take an ax to them. And I think that it's been very difficult here. She has the whole picture, right? And I think she's, I think there is a struggle, probably not just between her, but between her writers and the studio of what goes in, what goes out. Um, but this was just a yeah. self-editing thing. There were other ways to, it's just, we didn't need this prophecy about credence. It just didn't work. And if we did need it, it just didn't work. Um, another unnecessary storyline, which, ties into something you actually really liked, which for me was a major turnoff, was the beginning of the film, we see a version of Queenie who has roofied Jacob to marry her. And look, there is no version of Queenie that we met in the first movie that would have roofied the love of her life perpetually, um, because if Newt had not stepped in, I don't know what would have happened, because they disagreed on what came next. Like that is such, that is so far removed from the Queenie that we met um, that I simply struggle to believe it. Do I think that the story needed to get Queenie from point A to point B? So from sweet Queenie that we met in the first one to the Ava Braun of Grindelwald by the end of this film, I understand that was the arc they needed. I think that the way they got her there didn't work. We, yeah, I do agree. We literally see Queenie deconstruct. Let me give you the breakdown. She's super in love in the first movie. Second movie, Jacob's like, I love you, but we got to be careful. I don't want you going to jail for being in love with me. She roofies him. Newt saves him. She leaves angry, gets in the rain, gets super distraught because she's by herself in the rain and doesn't have anyone, joins the Nazis. That is not like, that's not how you join the Nazis. Like that is, it just, ugh. No, uh, like, no. And then, like, my brother and I got into an argument because he was like, she's under the imperious curse, which I vehemently disagree with. That argument she has with Jacob at the end, when she's like, come with me, Jacob. Come with me. And, like, that is fury. That's not the imperious curse. That is her making a conscious choice to go. The reason she looks like she's in so much pain when she crosses that loyalty fire is because it cost her to go because she knows that she had to give up Jacob, but she made that decision willingly. Like yeah. I, there is no, like I will eat my socks if she is under the imperious curse. You will eat your socks. And I have a Harry Potter sock advent calendar in my house right now. <laughs> You have a sock advent calendar? They make such things? They do at Target. I got a Game of Thrones one and a Harry Potter one, and I will eat the Harry Potter socks if she's under the Imperious Curse, because that would be outrageous to me. 
but not almost as outrageous as like date raping Jacob. Like it's just, oh, I, I can't touch it. Yeah, it's it's a problemsome. It's a really troublesome storyline. So we have, and one- this is a fault. It's just bad writing too, because it doesn't yeah. ever come up again. It's just like oh, boop boop. Like it's supposed to be cute and funny. Like that's what they really do. Like, joke out of it, and it's just disturbing. Yeah. So we have one more thing before we dive into the plot twist, and this is one that I've been chewing on, and I'll probably continue to chew on. Hit me up on Twitter. I think. Grindelwald is a much better villain than Voldemort. And I think that is extremely problematic. So Voldemort, I've written a lot on Voldemort actually. Voldemort was symbolic of overarching evil um, in the books. He's, he's cartoonish in his evilness, right? For examples of like true evil, human evil, we, we look at people like Dolores Umbridge, right? Or or the Malfoys, or Bellatrix Lestrange, like cruel and, and, and disconnected and lack of empathy. But Voldemort was always kind of this cartoonish figure that's supposed to remind us of kind of like the evil in this world. I didn't realize how bad a villain Voldemort is until Grindelwald creates a human version of Voldemort. Um, everything he's selling, the fascism, the fear, the manipulation, is everything that Voldemort, I was about to say Trump, which is hilarious, uh, that Voldemort- There's no difference. There's no difference. Except it's just better written and, 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 and Grindelwald works better. And I understand why Death Eaters would follow Grindelwald. Um, they're not called Death Eaters, but they're the precursor to Death Eaters. And then when I think of Voldemort and his like, and I'm leaving canon out from Cursed Child because I don't got the time and I don't want to spoil it for anyone. But like, it makes Voldemort kind of like a pretty sucky villain. And I read this, I think it was a Vice article or Vox article that was like, Crimes of Grindelwald makes the other books worse. And like, this is the first time I agree. By creating a villain that is human in Grindelwald, which I think is a step up from Voldemort, it made me realize that Voldemort is a terrible villain. Not because he is terrible, but because he needed to be written better. Uh, so that's, yeah. all, that's all I've got. But I, I feel very strongly about that, and I'm probably going to write about it until I can make sense of it. Um, but does that make sense, John? Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. I mean, like, you know, the fact that Grindelwald is making Voldemort look like chump change is something that's really, I think we really have to take into account. Yeah, like, he makes, like, Voldemort look like the Ursula of villains. And, like, this is Scar. I don't know. It just doesn't work for me. Um, So this is that time where we move on to the big plot twist where Marcy tried to burn things. (laughs) Da-da-da-da! Guys. Marcy, will you? Okay, so for everyone, let's go through the plot twist. So break it down for us. Right. So I'll break it down with the with the tidbits that led to it. The beginning of the film, we hear Dumbledore. I think he tells Newt that phoenixes appear for any Dumbledore who needs them. Right. That it's like a part of their heritage as Dumbledores, the phoenix bird. Throughout the entire movie, we see this fledgling phoenix following Credence around. Uh, We find out, obviously, Credence is not Leader Lestrange's lost brother. Uh, At the end of the film, when they're in that German Nazi castle somewhere, 
uh, and we've got Grindelwald as Hitler. Uh, we have Queenie as Eva Braun, and they go in to talk to Credence, and Queenie tells them, be very careful. Um, <laughs> Grindelwald tells Credence the truth. He hands him a wand, um, which I actually looked up in my wand encyclopedia, which I have, fuck all y'all laughing, because I do. <laughs> it's not a wand I recognize. <laughs> not a wand I recognize. Gives him a wand and says, it's time, like, I hand you, I should just pull out the screenplay, but, like, it's time I hand you back uh, your heritage. Your brother's trying to eliminate you. Ding, ding, I look at Brent, my husband, and I was like, his brother, his brother, <laughs> his brother. And, like, Brent always figures shit out before me, right? He's the guy who, when you went to go see the village, spoils it for you three minutes in. And he's like, those glasses are from 1980, not the 1500s. And I'm like, fuck you, because I didn't figure it out. He's like, Dumbledore. <laughs> he just whispers, Dumbledore. And I was like, fuck you, it's not Dumbledore. Honestly, like, my brain was malfunctioning. Like, this was worse than being, like, this was worse than when, like, my first love legit cheated on me in front of my face. Like, I, like, when he says, you are Aurelius Dumbledore, I was like, oh, like, insert dramatic music right here. Like, I am, I am so upset <laughs> about this revelation. Are you upset, Marcy? <laughs> I right now for a visual for people I'm I'm the anger guy from inside out um I have read book seven more than any other book in my life I we talked in the last episode that the second I figured out what an obscurious obscural was I was like Ariana Dumbledore was an obscural um I am obsessed with the chapter in which we talk to Aberforth, Albus's brother in, in book seven. I know the life and lies of Albus Dumbledore. That is my second most list. I, so I listen to audiobooks every night when I fall asleep because I have insomnia. There's two chapters I listen to nonstop. The Yule Ball <laughs> and then the life and lies of Albus Dumbledore. You want to know what mine is? What is yours? Mine is the pensive chapter. Okay, so I have to listen to that chapter. You're talking about book seven, Snape's Worst Memory? Um, first of all, that's a good one. But no, I love the pensive chapter in The Goblet of Fire. Interesting. Okay. Um, but I'm just like, I know, like, I know like the back of my hand, the history of Harry Potter, the canon. Albus Dumbledore had a brother named Aberforth, a sister named Ariana, and a mother named Kendra. At no point in time does anything in any of the canon support an Aurelius Dumbledore. The dates don't match up because his dad ended up in Azkaban after trying to defend Kendra from what happened, not Kendra, Ariana from what happened. And let's just say he had, because I broke down the, the years, let's just, so for him to be actually a contemporary sibling, he'd be like 30. Like, yeah. For him to have been a secret love child from his dad and someone in Azkaban, he would have to be 28. Credence is a baby. He's like 18. Uh, the, the dates don't add up. So I've got a couple theories on this. The theory that I just refuse to accept is that this is true and uh, we didn't know about it. Dumbledore doesn't know about it or he's lying about it. 
I, that would be canon destroying. Like there is no way to come back from that. And it changes the first seven books. Uh, I, I mean, that's my, my comment is, is like, okay, like, hold up, wait a minute. Like, are we actually watching JK Rowling tell us that the Dumbledore you thought you knew is not really the Dumbledore you thought you knew? Look, I'm not embarrassed to say I'm doing a reread project throughout Thanksgiving. I'm literally, I've been listening to the audiobooks for years because they bring me- Because they're fucking good. Well, are you Stephen Fry or Jim Dale? Jim Dale. Yes. So, but I have- Originalist. Thank you. I probably have not sat down and read from start to finish book one through book seven in about two years. This has made me need to over Thanksgiving break from start to finish with my handy dandy highlighter in my academic copies to see if there's stuff that supports any of this bullshit. Um, I don't think it's in there, which makes me think that Grindelwald has lied to Credence. The Phoenix bird is a setup. It's all a lie. Um, Here's the thing though. If it's a lie, it is shoddy fucking writing because you've already had lies with Credence in this storyline. Like the fact that he was a squib, the fact that his sister was the wizard, the fact that he wasn't Lita Lestrange's brother, it's tiresome. Um, and, and I just, I don't enjoy it. Am I going to trust my, my queen and savior? Yes. For now, I owe her that allegiance to see this through because she changed my life and I, and I love her. But either way, best case scenario, he's lying. Worst case scenario, Dumbledore's lying. This is just shitty. It's just shitty. Like, I, there is yeah, no- Yeah, I, I really have to see where this goes. Say what? I have to see where this goes, basically. Like, I'm really furious about this. And I think it's, I think it's a red herring. Except it was, it, it, like, red herring is supposed to be your interpretation is wrong. Except here, they're telling me he's Aurelius Dumbledore, um, which is why it makes me angry. If I had interpreted it as that and then was wrong, I'd be like, ah, like, fell for it. But, like, here, it's not that I fell for it. You told me. You're telling me he's Aurelius Dumbledore, which Aurelius Dumbledore doesn't exist. He doesn't even go here. Like, I just, I'm so angry. Um, and there's just so many reasons this is problematic. So we know from Order of the, is it Order of, no, 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 no. From the Half-Blood Prince. We know that Dumbledore's entire life is marked by the loss of Ariana. Like he has never forgiven himself for that, ever. So you're telling me that a man who's, who literally, his spirit broke when he lost his sister has somehow erased his brother from existence? What? That makes no sense. Yeah, I don't know. And, like, and there's not an implication that he's a secret brother because Grindelwald says your brother's trying to destroy you. Like, it's just, that's not the Dumbledore I know. The Dumbledore I know with all his faults is not the type of man who would deny a sibling. Um, I mean, he keeps Aberforth close in Hogsmeade. Like, it's just, it doesn't, no. Some of the stuff I've heard floating around is like maybe Ariana's Obscurial jumped onto someone else, but the dates don't match for that. And that's why we, it sucks because I think when we talk about this big reveal of what we, 
understand with what we really need to think about with these films and the fact that there are three more is that where there's the this is a big problem with the monetization of fandom and with actually finished projects that we don't need to touch again like did we really need all these films i mean the potterheads are like yeah totally we love them but like this is where money wins over like you know quality in my opinion and i'm hoping jk rowling i know she's smarter than a lot of probably all of us right but and it's her world she's smarter than all of us but she's you know it's her world it's her it's her writing it's you know is it canon you know if it comes you know she is the author so we have to take it as such and there's big revelations and i was watching a few videos of the actors today and you know they kind of queued up saying like what J.K. Rowling told them about where their characters are going. And they're like, wow, I never saw that coming. But I don't know. I guess we have to be really conflicted because I don't think, I thought this was like the second film in a third film, like trilogy. And the fact that we have three more films really annoys me. No, I think it's just to make money. No. Okay. So you and I were talking about this earlier today. Cause y'all, we don't just talk on the podcast. We just talk to each other all day. All day, every day. All day, every day. I love you. Um, we were talking a bit about like, and this brings me to like the last Jedi in Star Wars, right? Um, people felt very strongly about last Jedi. Either it was perfection or it destroyed the universe. More specifically, it destroyed, this is where the parallel comes in. It destroyed the Luke Skywalker they knew, right? So people were like, Luke Skywalker's untouchable. You can't do this. Like, you can't do this. And I, I really ragged on Star Wars fans, partially because I was part of the group that was like, Last Jedi is one of the, my favorite Star Wars films ever. Um, it's great. I love it. But this weekend has humbled me a bit. Do I think the, the fucking incels who were burning like Last Jedi shit were ridiculous? Yeah. But... I think I finally understand where there is that crux of like fandom and an ownership over, over stories. So like, these are the stories of our time, Star Wars, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, Chronicles of Narnia, The Hunger Games. Like, these Glitter are- starring Mariah Carey. Glitter. <laughs> I love Which you. is number one on iTunes. What the fuck is happening? It's be- okay. First of all, she's a musical genius, and the fact that she that film wrecked her psyche, and she bought the masters to that film. That's why it was never on Spotify or anything. This is a quick segue into Mariah Carey fandom, but she is a genius, and that's why it's a story of my time. My God, not even Dumbledore in the twenties would agree with that. Um, <laughs> I think there's honestly a very hard relationship with canon versus fan interpretation um, big time so i i'm a firm believer that the story belongs to the author jk rowling could drown the harry potter narrative she could pump out a new book a day that i don't agree with that is her story to tell right um something that i think i need to remember is no one can change the relationship i have with the canon that i value um I think I've said this before. I think the cursed child is one of the most beautiful things I've seen on stage. Nothing in the cursed child works as canon for me. I, I literally reject all of it. Is the cursed child canon? It's considered canon. Yeah. Really? Oh, I didn't know that. I just reject it. Uh, 
I rejected it on the page. I rejected it on the stage. Uh, I absolutely love the stage. It's just, it's not part of the canon that, that matters to me. And so as we're working through the Fantastic Beast, I'm having to come to terms with the fact that like, this is harder to, to, to not consider canon because it is so, uh, Cursed Child comes after the Harry Potter books finish. This comes before, before is foundation. After, I don't give a shit. There's better fan fiction out there than the Cursed Child. Um, but it's hard. It's hard for me to accept that some of this stuff technically is canon if she says it is. Whether or not it enters my lexicon of truth is a whole nother ball game and no one can take that away. Um, but this is her story to tell. But Aurelius Dumbledore does not exist. But that's my problem, right? I also, yeah, it's, it's her story to tell. But I think there's a level of uh, ownership. There are certain people that watch a film and they won't watch the sequels. They're like, you know what? No, this is my fandom. This is what I own in this universe. And they don't listen to anything else. I think that there are parts of these stories that do belong to the fans. And I think that even J.K. Rowling herself would say these stories do belong to the fans. I mean, that's why she created Pottermore. I think that's why she created all of these different stories. And she goes into such tangents into these backgrounds of people. I mean, there's that beautiful story of, you know, that young kid, I think he died of cancer. And then she built him into the sorting hat in one of the books. I think it was like books five or through seven or something like that. And, you know, during the sorting hat ceremony, I mean, she listens to the world around her and she knows how important the fans are. And that's why I'm super skeptical that she would do something like this. But, you know, we'll have to wait and see, sadly. Right. All right, y'all. So that brings us to the end of our kind of take on Crimes of Grindelwald. Um, thank you for coming on this journey with us. Um, so we don't have hookahs that see the future, but John, if you had one prediction uh, for the next film, uh, give it to me straight. A whole lot more of Theseus Commander. <laughs> That's your prediction. That's my prediction. And if Colin Woodell from The Purge could go on there, I would die a happy man. <laughs> so I, my prediction coming up is we're going to get a lot of backstory uh, because we know that Grindelwald already has the, the uh, elder wand. You have to tell us how he got it. So I'm predicting a lot of like flashbacks. Um, and I am, this is from a place of hope predicting that Queenie comes back to her senses or makes a huge mistake and then comes back to the light side uh, similar to Draco coming back or, and not, or, and I would like for Nagini to take a prominent role in this next film. Yeah. I definitely think I'm really looking forward to seeing more of the Tina Newt relationship. I think they're so cute together. Um, like but water. I've never seen two people. The only people I've seen who have less chemistry than Tina and Newt are the two people who did 50 shades of gray <laughs> like Shade. honestly like you and i have more chemistry <laughs> well we do we have a lot of chemistry but hot um <laughs> hot fire um i'm looking forward to seeing the ultimate showdown be between dumbledore and grindelwald um you know i think that it's much like I think we're in the universe here of like the prequel films for the Star Wars universe. And I think when Marcy and I are much older, we're going to get 
like post Harry Potter films, just like we always expected, because like with all good things in capitalism, you can never just let it alone and let it be. You always have to make more money out of it. I mean, that's why they have theme parks. That's why they have everything for this. So, you know, we're definitely, that's why they have advent calendars. I mean, capitalization and corporatization of fandom is one of the leading, you know, parts of, you know, I think, the economy with how people just buy and consume and purchase from film to TV to everything. So, you know, I definitely think we have a lot more to come there. I'm really looking forward to seeing more of the beasts and this like world of Newt's briefcase. I just love those little glimpses. And ultimately I would like to know a lot more about Dumbledore and any, I love watching for like future hints. So any hints to future Potterverse stuff, like in books one through seven or movies one through seven, I'm really going to be, watching for for sure well everyone thank you for joining us uh we will be back like we said uh with now that we've covered uh crimes of grindelwald we're going to be moving on to the hunger games and we'll probably keep this setup of what works what doesn't work for us which um i really enjoy it how about you john I enjoyed it. Yeah, we're really looking forward to finishing out November with these two films. And then come December, to get you through the holidays, we will be dropping um, our takes on The Hunger Games because Marcy and I, well, I won't go into what team I'm on yet, but we will be definitely having some fun with that before we start season two of the actual pop culture theologians where we take a show and go from episode one to the, to the season finale with the discovery of witches. All right, everyone have a fantastic Thanksgiving. We are so thankful for you guys, the listeners. We're thankful for you and Theseus Commander. Theseus Commander. Bye, y'all. Bye.